Many years, our family took summer vacations up at Hume Lake, uh, and there was a cabin that we liked uh, particularly well because of its size and layout. It was on Christmas Tree Lane, and everything was brand new, and there was a reason it was brand new. Above the fireplace, in a glass box, was a Bible that was open, a permanent fixture there, and the pages were singed around the edges. And you know where this is headed, right? They had a tragic fire a few years earlier, and there was a note uh, underneath the Bible in the frame that said the only thing that had survived in their cabin was that Bible. And so in September, the pastors uh, went on a retreat up there, and we were staying uh, across the street in a different cabin uh, from that uh, cabin of old. And so I was walking by one day, and I saw the owner sitting on their porch there, just happened to be up at the same time. And we got to talking, and I said, do you remember us and the family name? And yes, they did uh, remember us. And uh, we started talking about the fire and the Bible uh, that they had up there. So they related the sad experience of losing everything. But really what stuck in my mind, and this is before, of course, Tubbs Fire, was the joy of rebuilding, and they had a little dedication service once the house was rebuilt and it was much better than before, and it was suited to how they uh, wanted their dream cabin to be. And so uh, they made a comment about how uh, the new hope and the joy had displaced uh, the sad memories. And, uh, you know, this is kind of what the book of Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, and Esther a trilogy because they're all telling the story of the Jewish people who had been exiled, who had lost everything in a fire, not a wildfire, but a a fire that was set by Middle Eastern terrorist arsonists who came in from Iraq, modern-day Iraq, which was Babylon. They came in and destroyed the place, and they burned and the temple to the ground and destroyed the rocks there and many people lost their homes and they took uh, the Israeli citizens captive and and took them away uh, 900 miles as it arches over to Baghdad from Jerusalem uh, to be exiled captives to live in Iraq instead of Israel. And so Ezra, Nehemiah and... um, Esther tell the story of God's faithfulness because he had already given them 
heads up, right? And so I've got that artist rendering of them leaving. It's called Flight of the Captives. And really sad, sad moment in Israel's history. But on the way out, Jeremiah the prophet was saying, God has a plan in 70 years. God has used King Nebuchadnezzar as a chastisement tool, a paddle, it's a pretty lethal one at that, uh, to get the Jews' attention. You know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't do your own thing and have a Lord. As Jesus would say, you know, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then don't do what I ask you to do? Do you see a problem with that? The, the Lord thing and then <laughs> doing your own thing. And so this is what happens when you do your own thing and you ignore the Lord. And so uh, they were taking out of a picture again, the arrow. Well, just this is good context for you. Um, and a lot of people weren't here last week. And so, you know, 900 miles this way as a crow Flies about 650, 700 miles. Uh, but they, back in the day, had to go this way. And, and, and so they had to live there 70 years. But the prophets had told them they would be coming back. Thank you for that slide. And so uh, after the reset of 70 years, the children and the grandchildren were looking forward to what the prophecies that they had, a scroll singed, as it were, around the edges by the fires that were started there in Jerusalem, but they had promises. They didn't have much. They had a promise and a God who keeps his promise. And that may not seem like a lot to the world, uh, but it's really all you need if you have faith. And so the remnant there uh, are looking at the promises. And so here's the context. Isaiah 44 and verse 22 said that God would raise up this king over the Persian empire that had control over Israel, King Cyrus. And the Lord, 150 years, if you were here last week, 150 years before Cyrus is born, Isaiah is, is prophesying, first person, through, the Lord is speaking through Isaiah saying, I will raise up this man called Cyrus. He will be my shepherd. In other words, he will lead the sheep, God's people, back from Iraq all the way back to the homeland. He will make it possible. So he, uh, chapter one, uh, we saw the decree. I mean, this guy's king of the world. And when he saw his name in Isaiah, you know, the, the commentaries say that he just came to a sort of an understanding this was his destiny. And so God used King Nebuchadnezzar, the Iraqi king, the king of Babylon, as a paddle. And then God stirred up the, his successor, uh, king of Persian Empire now, to do uh, the good task of freeing the Jews and sending them back. I do have a chart, you know, how I am, you know, uh, the, the, okay, so just as a context, you know, so Ezra, one through six, Ezra's not in the first phase of setting up the temple. He, he comes in at, at chapter seven, but he's definitely telling you who came in in chapter two. Now we're going to see a list of who uh, came back and who went to work to, to uh, get reestablished in the motherland, as it were. Now, interesting, the book of Esther happens in between chapter six and chapter seven of this book that we're studying. Now, 
it's interesting because here's phase one, they come back. So the promise that they're coming back, they first build the temple. So that's Ezra's theme, the temple. And then the book of Esther, you remember a successor to Cyrus, who's now in charge of the world, the Persian Empire. Xerxes is his name. And he gets mad at his wife. They have a blowout, right? And it's an amazing story. And that explains so much of why the Jews have so much favor to go back. And, and they're actually funded to go and rebuild the temple. Why do they have such favor? Well, because this King Xerxes got mad at his wife, as I was saying, and deposed her and said, I need another wife. So let's have a beauty contest. You know, they didn't go on Match.com back in those days. So he said, I want to have a beauty contest. And, and, and Esther wins the beauty contest, and she marries the king of the world. <laughs> and little did anybody know that she's a Jew. And so now, yes, it's true. The husband is the head of the household, but the wife is the neck, and she can turn the head in any direction she wants. <laughs> You've heard that saying before, right? And so Esther, the neck, is turning Xerxes in the direction of the favor of the Jews. And so we finish up with the book of Nehemiah. He comes in a, a, a city back in the day without a wall, was no city at all. And so Nehemiah's task was to finish the job and put up the wall, right? And so you have, as I said, called it a trilogy of sorts. And so really, you know, God's heart here, as we see, is to comfort those who grieve in Jerusalem. And there's a, a, a beautiful passage. Let me, you can put it up there, Jonathan, Isaiah 61. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness or despair, they will rebuild the ruins and restore the places long devastated. But they had nothing but a promise. And the same goes for you and for me. Whatever state you find yourself in, really, all you have is a promise and a God who will keep that promise. So all you need to do is patiently wait for God to fulfill what he's promised to you. So with that said, I think you get it. And uh, here we go, chapter two. Now, these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles. To be exiled is to be temporarily displaced from your, your homeland. Whom Nebuchadnezzar, who got saved in the end, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah. Judah's the, the region, Jerusalem the city. Each to his own town. Two in company with... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. My bad. <laughs> First two. In company with... Uh, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, I'll tell you if that's the real one. Well, you know what I mean by that. Sariah, really? No, sorry. <laughs> Reliah, Reliah, Relia. There we go, Relia. She was half Italian. Uh, you didn't know that. Mordecai, yes, it's him. And yes, it's him. Bilshan, Mispar, Bigby. 
Riam and Bana. So ladies, you know what I say about these things. If you're looking for baby names, look, some, look somewhere else. Now it says, these are the people. Did I cut that line off? Yeah, the, the, the list of the men of the people of Israel uh, follows that line, right? And now we're going to be treated to a list of the heads of the families uh, who went down there. Now, so uh, King Cyrus has been stirred up by the Lord. He issued that royal decree. The Jews get their visas and they get assistance and protection along the way. There's a massive giving campaign. I'm telling you about chapter one. They collect the belongings, the valuables that King Nebuchadnezzar ripped off from the Jerusalem temple and took to Babylon for 70 years. They went in and got them all, gathered them all and itemized them and they're putting them in the caravan and they're taking them back. You can put our verses back up there. Thank you. And so they're taking them back, and and they're going to go back, and now it's time to go, as you see in your opening verses. And so uh, these are all listed, heads of family, and boys uh, 12 and older are listed. Uh, There will be, by the end of the chapter, uh, 42,360, not specific names, but heads of households. And they're telling you with the children and with the wives, it's 42,360 people who make the nine-month, 900-mile journey back to Jerusalem. And so now... Uh, Here is the caption, and 107 names, in addition to the names you see of the 11 leaders uh, who went. By the way, the list that follows the 107 names, um, that genealogy, those lists are given also in Nehemiah chapter 7. You know takers like stuff like that, so I throw that out there for you. uh, So... 107 names. So we begin with the leaders. Just some special note there. Zerubbabel was appointed the governor. So he's going to be the governor of Jerusalem. He's the head guy. And it's interesting to me that he's related to the last king of Judah. When Nebuchadnezzar came in, there was a reigning king. And he's related to him. So 70 years, 80 years by the time everything's or whatever, it's gone on is he's actually blood to the king, and now he's uh, ruling as a governor. And by the way, the second temple, this is called the second temple that's going to rise. The first temple is called Solomon's temple. The second temple is called Zerubbabel's temple. And then the temple that is around with when Jesus is, in Jesus' time, is called Herod's temple. Now, uh, Jeshua there will be the high priest. He'll be the head pastor, all right? And Jeshua is uh, Hebrew for the Greek, uh, where we get the word Jesus. Uh, Nehemiah, uh, half of the scholars say, yes, it's him on multiple journeys because we don't hear from him until the book, really, right? But I believe it is the Nehemiah, a young Nehemiah, making he makes several journeys. He does make several journeys in his own book, Nehemiah. Uh, and Mordecai, who will be promoted. Here's this Jew, nobody knows. He will be 
promoted to the second highest position in the Persian Empire. Everybody in Persia will bow to that man, but nobody knows it yet because there's a hero inside of him. But uh, it hasn't happened until uh, the book of Esther, which is coming in chapter 6. We've already been through the book of Esther and Nehemiah. So, okay, let's continue. Now, that's the introduction. Now, here come the 107 names. Now, rather than deprive you of the fun of reading those 107 (laughs) names, let's sum up the list, shall we? And you could go home tonight and go through every last one of them if you can. Now, here's what I got instead. I've got the summation. So here, we're going to jump from verse 3 to 63, where you're going to get about 107 names. Very interesting. Now, we're not going to get out of chapter 2, and I'm not reading those names. And so I... I feel like the Lord has a simple message encrypted in why uh, he took the time to go through all the families that went and name the heads of the families and itemize everything from the pots and the pans that went to the donkeys and the horses and how much money was given in the offering. Everything about this trip is itemized, and there's a spiritual application for that. And if that's all we get to tonight, which I believe it, 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 it will be, it's for somebody. There's a truth here tonight. So let's continue, continue then, and we'll, we'll now look at this. Lay people. So he's saying, here, here's the folks that made the first journey of the 43,000. They're just, la, la, laity means not professional clergy, all right? So if you're not a vocational minister, you're a part and you help at church, you're called a lay person. And we use lay person for all kinds of professions as well. It just means you're not trained. It's not your your expertise necessarily. You're, You're just an ordinary person who is involved. And so these are just the everyday believers according to their ancestry. Uh, some more lay people according to their hometown. And then you have four clans of priests. Now, the first ones, the priests here are related to Aaron. And they're the only ones who can be high priests or we think of them as senior pastors. Uh, And you have to be born into the family that way. Now, the, the Levites were also, they're both the, These are called priests who are related to Aaron. These are related to Levi, but so were the the guys related to Aaron. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah, just nod your head, yes. It'll it'll work out. So the, the Levites were allowed to be associates. They weren't allowed to be the lead pastors. And you'll remember that guy, uh, Korah, Korah's rebellion. They were Levites. And they were tired of not being the lead guy. <clears throat> so they came to Moses and said, hey, who made you more holier than everybody else? We all have the Holy Spirit. There's no, you're closer and you get to be the senior guy. Uh, we're Levites, you know, but they weren't related to Aaron. And so, you know, that chorus rebellion did not go so well for the Levites. Remember? All right. So that's, that's them. There were some of the, these ancestors. The, the worship team. 
according to their ancestry. And then in verse 42, the gatekeepers. Very interesting word, according to their ancestry. These are the helpers in the church who were responsible for opening, uh, opening and getting everything good to go in the morning and closing up, locking up at night. And the word for, this is the doorkeepers, right? And you know King David in, where was it? Psalm, oh, I've got it down here somewhere. I never follow these things. Why do I even have notes? All right, <laughs> Psalm, Psalm 84, verse 10. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the temple of the Lord than to live with the wicked out there in their big mansions. And so what happened was, and by the way, we get the word janitor from the Latin word doorkeeper. So these were the janitors of the place, the custodians. And David said, I'd rather be a custodian in the church. And they lived in little tiny closets in the temple, you know, not much, a little cot, a little table, a little candle. But they had a job there and they were happy. And David said, I'd rather be that guy than, than being out in the world and not being in relationship and serving God. And so it goes on to just ordinary servants according to ancestry. And then something very interesting. Those who couldn't prove their ancestry. Let's talk about that. Let's continue. We're going to scroll down to verses 62 and 63. Well, that was the fastest 60 verses I've ever taught through. <laughs> These searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor ordered them not to eat of the most sacred food, until there was a priest ministering with a Urim and Thummim. So let's talk about these who couldn't prove. Here's the spiritual application. It's a good one. There was no evidence that they were born into the family of God. There was no evidence. They could talk about it. Yeah, my dad knows this guy, and we grew up in this place, and my people are from Bethlehem. And they could do all of that, but they couldn't prove it. And if you wanted to be in the ministry, you had to keep, oh, you had to keep these records were life and death. But they, it, it says right there, they couldn't find them. And it was sort of, in the Hebrew, a sort of a carelessness, kind of a suspect thing. Like, we want to be a part of the thing, but we can't really show you evidence that we're truly who we claim to be. Be. And so now you start to think, oh, there's some spiritual application here. One writer said, in the procession of professed believers, both then and now, in the mix, there are always those with questionable relationship to God. In the farmer's field, you'll recall, Jesus taught, there was genuine wheat growing together with counterfeit weeds the two impossible to distinguish with human discernment. But only in the end, like these in our text, will require the revelation of God himself who searches hearts and minds. And so our culture, postmodern culture, doesn't do well with this whole idea of some are in and some are out. But here we see some are in and some are out. And the out, had no evidence that they were 
legit. And, and so that's what the Bible says, that there are some in and some out. God wants everybody to be in. That's why he came, laid down his life, and died for not only our sins, but the sins of the world. That everybody who believed in his name, who received Christ, to them, he gave the right to become children of God. John chapter 1 and verse 12, right? He gave to them the right to become children of God. So there's an in, and he did not give it to those who did not receive his son. There's an in and there's an out. There's sheep and there are goats. There are believers and unbelievers. There's the church and the world. There are two groups of people. And the world wants a God that says anything's okay. It's inclusivity at any cost. And so it just goes to show you here in verse uh, 62 and 63 that they could not produce evidence that they were indeed. Now, you know, we were all out at one time, weren't we? We were all dead in our sins, following the ways of this world, uh, the evil one. And, and by nature, we were all objects of God's judgment. We were on the out, every last one of us. But God made a way, as I've been saying, to come back in. And he wills that none perish, that everyone comes to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. Right? But that doesn't mean that there isn't an in and an out. And so here, here you have these, these folks. In the Old Testament, you had to be in relationship with Israel. There were rites of passage or all kinds of things. In the New Testament, you have to have a connection with Christ, Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world. And so how about you? Are you, are you in or out? I, I mean, listen... The wheat and the weeds, the enemy sowed the weeds in the field. And there was no proof or evidence. You couldn't tell. And, and, and the guy comes to the farmer and he says, should we pull up the weeds? And he says, oh, no, 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 you can't do that because they look too similar. You're going to pull up, you know, the, some of the weeds can have a weed moment and then you, you don't, you know, you'll pull them up. And some of the weeds are so good, you know, you'll get confused. You won't know, only God knows. And so at the end, God will make the, the call. And so that's what you kind of have here, the spiritual application of can you produce the evidence, I really, that verse is just so beautiful. These searched for their family records. So let me show you, let me evidence it. How do you evidence it today? You, you know, you would evidence by repentance. You would evidence by moral transformation. There's so many people who say, I believe in God. And I'm part of the church, and I'm, I go to Wednesday night Bible study and all of that. But you don't know who's sitting next to you. You really don't. You must search your heart. You must provide evidence for your own life. Do I have a love of Jesus? Do I spend time with him? Do I corral my thoughts? Am I growing as a Christian? These are, these are evidences that, that you would be able to produce. L- listen, you've heard the adage. If, if, it, if somebody charged you with being a Christian and wanted to take you to court, <laughs> is there enough evidence 
to, to convict you. <laughs> it, you know, that's the kind of the, well, there's no evidence for these guys. So, so here's what it says. It says, listen, you're not going to be in the ministry. We don't know who you are. There's no evidence. We have no evidence of that. And so we're going to wait until the, you can't serve the communion to eating the sacred foods. It's communion-based. Think of it as communion. You can't serve the communion. You can't take communion. You're out of fellowship because you're not the real deal. Or you, you say you are, but we don't have any proof of that until we get the priest and the urim and the thummim. And now you'll recall that the high priest would pray and he had this beautiful thing in the pouch of his garment. And they had two little, they were called the urim and the thummim. And they were two stones. And maybe one was dark and one was white. And they were, could answer yes and no questions. And so is this guy legit? They, they'd pray and then the guy would reach in and pull out a yes he is or a no he's not. All right, And so uh, the spiritual application in the New Testament is, is that the Holy Spirit has put his presence in our hearts. And when we need an answer, we need wisdom and instruction. We need to know which way to go. We reach in to our hearts. The Holy Spirit has promised to give us wisdom and guidance and all of this. And so, you know, to ask ourselves, you know, am I just caught up in the movement? <laughs> you know, um, there's going to be a lot of surprises coming, sadly. And, and there'll be some surprises like, you know, wow, you're here, you know, in heaven. <laughs> and then someone will look at you and say, whoa, you're here, <laughs> you know. I, 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 and then you, you, there will be people missing. There'll be people missing, and you'll be like, what? There's no way. I would have never guessed in a million years. Come on. When Je Jesus looked at the 12 of them and said, truly, I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. And they were dumbfounded. I would think all the heads just went down. You know the artist renderings? They're all sitting like this. I just picture all the heads going, looking at Judas. They didn't suspect him of a thing. They couldn't produce proof, and so they said, you know, we're going to have to let God have the last word on you. And that's what they did. Okay, so almost done. Let's take the last chunk. The whole company numbered 42,360 besides their 7,337. Now, just take a look at the detail. Because the devil's not in this detail. God is in the details. Besides their 7,337 men servants and maid servants, and they also had 200 men and women singers. They had 736, not 737, 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. Free will offerings, nice. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 drachmas of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, 
minus, however you pronounce it, and a hundred priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants settled in their own towns along with some of the other people and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. And so let's talk about what we have in front of us. The itemized list just blow me away. 42,360 individuals coming, naming their families and ministers and ministries and helpers and janitors and offerings, how much, the worship teams, specific numbers, specific details, 736 horses and 245 mules, and you have it in front of you. And don't forget in chapter one, I have that real quick, I'll just show you. In chapter one, when they went to get the stolen articles out of the temple, uh, there's a list there. Here's the inventory. Here's what we took out of the temple there in Baghdad that belonged to our temple, and we're taking it back. 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, <laughs> silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. And in all, there were sets with these things. 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Now, you can go back to our, the last paragraph there. Thank you. What, why is there such detail? Why such specific information? I'm glad you're asking those questions tonight. <laughs> I'll tell you the answer. The Bible doesn't begin with once upon a time. God intervenes in human history. In a, in a verifiable way. He enters history as it is. And he's the one, rather, this is how it starts. We begin with a de declaration. God, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And he declares, he's the one who started it all. In the beginning, God created uh, here's how it got started. Here's who's in charge. Here's how things went tragically wrong. Here's how God went about to fix everything. Real people, verifiable histories. There's no myth. He's not making anything up. And that's why you get these names, specific names, 107 Names that, that are first names of people. What, what is up with that? It's just wonderful. Here, here's what I, I want to show you. Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story. Because the Bible is not a book about myths or a narrative or a story. It is factual. It's historical. There are names and dates and places and landmarks and events and customs and wars and all of these things that are verifiable because God wants you to believe. And so look at this. Look at this. Is this a story of a make-believe story about Jesus coming into the world? In those days, Caesar Augustus is verifiable in the history books. This is an emperor issued a decree. This is a law. This is in, in, in the history books. Of the, here's a place the entire Roman world. It's just not a make-believe story. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was go governor of Syria, another name, 
another verifiable name, another position, another country. And everyone went down to his hometown to register. So Joseph, another name, went up from the town of another place that you can go and visit (laughs) with a region, Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, a history, a place, another name. Because he belonged to the house and the line of David, another genealogy, which Matthew will start with. He went there to register Mary, to be pledged to be married to him, expecting a child. When they were there, the time came for a baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wraps him in swaddling clothes and places him in a manger because there's no room in the inn. Now, does that sound like a, a bunch of symbols and, you know, we can't take the Bible literally? This is why Ezra chapter 2 itemizes every person. Every, uh, everything on every donkey, everything that's going is, is itemized for our verifiable uh, reasons here. And so I just wanted you to see that. I mean, it, God intervenes in human history. Real people with real names. And so those 107 names, the heads of households, you know, Zachai, he's God remembers, or Bazai which means shadow of God. He's in the list. And then you have Joram, which means autumn rains. And in the list are real lives, real people. God redeems real people. That's why we got their first names like that. And, you know, even their nicknames, just so fun, you know, their nicknames. There's one guy in in your list there when you're reading tonight. His name is Hashem. It means broad-nosed. Okay, and so some of them were named by how they appeared, right? And so you had Gibar. It means strong dude, all right, strong man. And then you have Ater. It means lefty. He was a lefty, right? And so what commentators are saying, just God puts the names in there. And he says, because you have a name. Because he's the God of the individual. He's he's lefty's God. And so whether your name is Sweetie or Petunias or Pumpkin, right? Or whether it's Bud or Spike or Champ or Knucklehead, right? He's your God. And, And now there's, why is there a list? There's a list because there's a book of life. And there's another list in Revelation 20. And unless you're in that list, you will perish. You won't have eternal life. Those who are not in the book of life, Revelation 20. God keeps lists. And this is what I want to close out on. Look at those details. He keeps lists because he knows who we are. He knows the number of follicles on your head. He keeps these things. He knows the tears that you've shed. He could tell you how many tears, how many hurts, how many slanderous things you've had to be victimized by, how many losses that you've handled well, your troubles, how many crosses you have borne, how many thorns. He's an itemizer. 
So I want you to make the, the bridge from this, that means very little to you, to knowing that he's keeping records, not just the pots and pans, he's keeping records of your tears. There's something in, in Psalm 56 that says he keeps the records and you're going to hear about it. Why does he itemize? Because everything wrong will be made right. Everything, down to the last cup of water, every kind word, he's got a record of it. He's going to open up some sort of book and then you're going to talk about the things that you went through and, and, and you know the things that you suffered and he's going to reverse those things. You know, I love the, 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 the scripture that says, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper and every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn How's that possible? Well, when we're standing in glory, every lie that's ever been spoken about you, every gossip, everything that's driven you crazy, everything that's kept you up at night and caused you heartache, because so-and-so is saying this is not true. In fact, it's not only not true, it's everything opposite of the truth. And God says, I've got it. I've got the list. I'm keeping tabs on everything. How you are giving, how you are loving, how you're handling everything. I think the biggest sting in, in suffering troubles is it feels just like there's no reason for it. And it's a waste of time and somebody's getting away with something. And he says, nobody gets away with anything. I know everything. I got it all numbered out. And when you stand before me, wrong will be right. You know from Chronicles of Darnia, wrong will be right when Aslan is in sight. At the sound of his roar, pain is no more. When he shakes his mane, there'll be spring again. You know, supposed to if I had a British accent, that would have worked better. But that's what I want you to see, is that he's paying attention to your life. And he's going to recompense you and reward you. He knows where you are. He's got your address. He hasn't lost track of you. He's got every last thing in his book, in his mind. And so we close on this thought. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why is it not in vain? Because he's keeping track. He's in the details. He's got it all lined up. You have nothing to worry about. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your love. Thank you for this itemized list that just says so much about who you are, Lord. That you're mindful of us and the things that got stolen. You were mindful of each cup. And you wanted each cup to go back. <laughs> You made sure everybody knows I knew about that cup and that cup's going back. How much more <laughs> you know about every little loss in our lives and every little cry of our heart, Lord. 
Thank you for your great love and care over our lives. In Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.